Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adrian Vaughn, and I'm the chair of ALE in New England. We are a 900 plus member organization of immigration lawyers throughout the New England states, and we are very, very proud to be part of this presentation today on um, a topic which I think is so important because um, although some of our members practice business, some practice family, some practice asylum, knowing the fundamentals of um, this topic um, about public charge is fundamental to all of our members and to have them help the, the public um, that we all serve. So um, without any other ado, um, allow me to please introduce um, our um, speakers today. I would like to start with Ms. Iris Gomez, who is um, at the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. Iris has been with them since 1992, and she is a nationally recognized immigration law expert who directs MLRI's Immigrants Protection Project. She is the former chair of the National Immigration Law Center's Board of Directors, and she has helped play leadership roles in numerous bar associations, government task force, and community organizations. She also has taught immigration law at Boston area law schools. And I will also like to um, um, introduce as well from MLRI, Mario Paredes, and Mario currently works as a staff attorney, and he coordinates the Joint Immigrant Detention Conditions Project, which is focused on supporting immigrants who find themselves incarcerated as civil detainees in our county jail system. Before becoming an attorney, Mario spent several years working with various community-based organizations, schools, and nonprofits. Our third speaker today is Ms. Jessica Chico, um, and she is the director of new, the New Americans Initiative at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. Um, she joined Mira, uh, Mira as a staff attorney in January 2020 after more than a decade working with immigrants and immigrant communities. She oversees the education and training programs and citizenship program and also works on federal policy issues. Most recently, she was a senior immigration attorney at Dove in Quincy, a mere member organization where she represented immigrant survivors of domestic violence. And finally, we have Andrew Cohen, who is the director and lead attorney with access to care and coverage team at Health Law Advocates. He has two decades of experience as a consumer advocate, community organizer, and healthcare policy expert. He is the director and lead attorney um, with more than a quarter, um, with over more than a quarter of century, um, ACC has helped many thousands of Massachusetts residents overcome barriers to needed healthcare coverage and services and resolve millions of dollars in consumer unaffordable medical debt. And with that, I would just finally like to say um, that um, um, ALA holds many um, um, programs and presentations. We also are having a national um, conference in June, from June 21 through 24, and we have some other very um, notable speakers as well on the panels at that. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Mario. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much, Adrian, and thank you also to the BBA for uh, hosting us today and for all of you for joining us either live or those of you who are going to be watching the recording. So as you see and as you signed up, we, we're talking about public charge today before we jump into what uh, you know the topic is and, and some of what you'll learn today. Just as an overview, today our hopes is that you're going to get a, really a uh, an understanding of the new public charge rules 
and also have a deeper understanding, although broadly around the intersection of immigration law and, and benefits eligibility so that your future clients can make informed decisions about both their benefits use and applying to benefits and, and um, their adjustment of status applications as well. So as you know, this is not going to be full legal advice and we're not going to be able to talk about specific you know, cases or instances. Um, but we want to provide some general overview around the new rule and how to approach it with your clients. Um, this information, you know, might be subject to change in the future as it has been in previous years. But, um, but as of right now, this is where things stand. So to start us off, just a quick roadmap of what we'll be covering today during our time together. Uh, first, we're going to just provide some brief context of where we are right now, you know, how we got here in terms of the new rule being issued and then really start talking about what the new rule says. Uh, I'll start with a quick overview, but afterwards we'll dive a little deeper with an examination of the benefits and the totality of circumstances analysis that many of you will be considering as you are working with your clients. We'll also talk about the examination of different statuses and how that may affect folks in adjusting their status and filling out the, the I-485. Uh, we'll, we'll cover afterwards a little bit more of a deeper dive into the actual new I-485 uh, form and what to do with any potential findings of inadmissibility, you know, any requests for further evidence and things of that nature. And then we'll close off with uh, some just main takeaways and have an opportunity for, for some questions as well. And I'll, I'll take a pause just to say too. Uh, you can absolutely submit questions using the Zoom function uh, during the presentation, and we're going to try to get to those, you know, some of them possibly during the presentation, but mostly we'll reserve time at the end to circle back and answer some of your questions. So, but as they come up, please feel free to use the Q&A function to, to do that. And with that, we'll, we'll jump in. Um, so the public charge rule, before we talk about it, it's just important, important to know the actual effective date of this new rule, considering that there's been changes in these last couple of years. And so the, the effective date of this new rule is December 23rd of 2022. Uh, DHS's uh, public charge final rule took effect on that date, and it applies to non-exempt adjustment of status applications that were postmarked either on that date or after that date. Any pending previously filed adjustment of status applications, those that were filed prior to the December 23rd date, they still remain subject to the 1999 interim field guidance um, that were that was in place, uh, you know, for many years prior to the, the the Trump guidance that was put out, and 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 right now it's it's back in use. And then uh, the final rule, actually, the current one that we're going to be talking about today and focusing on cements and improves on that 1999 guidance that was in place for more than 20 years and was based on, uh, you know, a century of policy and practice that preceded that as well. We're not going to really get into the, the major details of what are the differences between the 1999 guidance and the current. We're going to be focusing on what the current rule says, but just so you have a very broad overview, and we'll talk about some of this at least in, in the next couple of slides, is there are some, some differences to keep in mind. Uh, one of those being that the new rule uh, attempted, attempts to clarify that DHS should approach 
the consideration of non-citizens' disability and long-term institutionalization at government expense. So it provides more clarity around that. There is also a new bright line rule uh, ruling against the consideration of receiving public benefits by an applicant's dependents. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so for example, if a US citizen uh, child is in a mixed status household, um, and they're the ones who receive the public benefit, it's not weighed against the actual applicant for adjustment of status. Also, there's a new I-45 form that we'll talk about um, that is meant to gather some relevant information that's pertinent to assessing, you know, and, and reviewing whether someone is going to be, um, you know, a considered a public charge. Uh, the new rule also has some new uh, definitions and attempt to clarify the rule. And it also includes some information or some new information around public charge bonds as well. And uh, finally, DHS also makes sure to state that for the purpose of determining inadmissibility, uh, primary dependence is going to be construed as a significant reliance on the government for support. Uh, and that government assistance is that is simply temporary or supplemental in nature does not constitute primary dependence. That's a very broad overview, but we'll talk about each of those a little bit further along. And just to note that the State Department's current policy, which is different than the Department of Homeland Securities, is similar to the 1999 guidance and applies to people applying for admission or LPR status outside of the U.S., including people who are required to leave the U.S. and seek status through the consular processing. There are, are some new forms uh, to keep in mind. And by the way, we'll be sending out all these slides that have the, the live links to you all after the presentation. But just so you're aware of, of what's available, first and foremost, we're linking to the public charge uh, final regulations. And so that includes the preamble that talks a little bit about how to interpret the regulations and also the actual language of the regulation. There's also a revised uh, Q&A on the USCIS website that also provides some, some further clarity and some answers to some of the more common questions that come up. Uh, further, uh, in December, USCIS also issued an updated policy manual that also goes a lot more de into detail of some of the things we'll be talking about today, such as the totality of circumstances and how to assess all the different factors that are taken into consideration for, for the public charge assessment. Uh, it also includes some hypotheticals as well, some different scenarios. Um, so we, you know, we strongly advise folks to look at that. And finally, the, the I-485 form and instructions as well. Again, it's the new ones that apply to folks who um, you know, are applying on or after the December 23rd date. Um, just a very quick, we're not going to be talking much about this today, but just a quick update on where things stand with litigation. So the Supreme Court had denied a petition attempt by Texas and, and several other states to intervene and try to resuscitate the Trump era public charge rule. Um, so that was denied. Right now, after this final rule you know, went into effect, Texas uh, filed a new lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's final public charge rule. Um, as of right now, you know, that's still pending, but, you know, the, I guess, to not get into the details, the, the overall assessment is that the Biden administration did go through the, a full notice and comment uh, process to get this rule laid out. And so it seems to be on very solid, you know, grounds, but if anything were to change, obviously we would be putting out, you know, information on that. So the bottom line for today's purposes is the Biden public charge rule is in effect. And so uh, that's what we will be talking about. So 
Let's start with just the, the quick definition of just what is the public charge rule for those of you who may not be familiar um, or too familiar with it. So when an immigrant applies for admission or green card permanent residency, their application is reviewed by government officials before they can obtain legal status. This public charge test is part of this review by officials to see whether the immigrant is considered uh, likely to be primarily dependent on the government for support in the future. Uh, the public charge test is not part of all immigration applications and, and we'll get into more details. And it's really about, you know, admissibility. So who needs to be admitted into the U.S.? Today's, you know, presentation and the final rule is mostly focused on um, the DHS uh, determination of public charge. And, and that applies to applicants for lawful permanent residence. And, and then also, you know, and the rule to a lesser extent talks about this is about lawful permanent residents who leave the U.S. for more than 180 days. Um, there's also a uh, public charge that's a rule that's taken into consideration under the Department of State's authority, and that's for applicants who uh, enter the U.S. or overseas visa applicants. There's also, uh, this is distinct from the Department of Justice deportability rules that we're not going to be talking about today either. And just so you know, the rule, you know, does not apply to those who file for adjustment of status in removal proceedings. Currently, there is no Department of Justice public charge rule about admissibility uh, for, um, you know, under for immigration judges and at the BIA as well. Um, so let me skip ahead here. And the public charge rule um, does not apply to many immigrants. There are many exemptions. Uh, Iris is going to get into more of that later in the presentation, but just to kind of start off, uh, it's important to, to know that it does not apply to U.S. citizens. The rule does not apply to, um, to green card renewals, uh, to those applying for citizenship, uh, to those who are adjusting in, in a number of many exempt statuses that are outlined in the rule uh, and other expressly exempt categories as well, both statutory and in, in the in the uh, regulation itself. Cool. And uh, finally, before I, I pass it on here, um, just to have a basic understanding of the definition of public charge in this regulation that mirrors very closely with the 1999 guidance is a public charge is someone uh, likely at any time to become primarily dependent on the government for subsistence as demonstrated by either the receipt of public cash assistance for income maintenance or long-term institutionalization at government expense. Uh, those two pieces, both the cash assistance and the long-term care are gonna be talked about in, in more depth uh, in, in the next couple of slides as well. Um, so with that said, I think I'm gonna pass it on to Andrew. And, and like I said, please uh, continue to ask questions as we, as we move along, so Andrew. Thank you, Mario. Thank you, everybody, for attending today. If you could go on to the next slide. <clears throat> so we're here talking about public charge. And when we're talking about public charge, people are really thinking about public benefits in their head, right? What public benefits people might be qualified for and what it might be safe to get. Well, the big headline we'd like to keep in your heads coming out of this presentation is that most immigrants, the vast majority, should keep their benefits or 
should enroll in benefits if they need to get these benefits to keep their families and themselves safe and, and, and secure. Receipt by family members is not going to count. So if a child, uh, if, if a person is applying for adjustment of status and their child receives benefits of any kind, including the kinds that are counted, um, that's fine for that person who's applying for adjustment. So really, the big headline is that Despite this public charge rule that has been very scary for a lot of people, most immigrants should keep their benefits. Next slide. So acknowledging sort of the fear that has been in the community, um, that, that's really what this slide is about. The climate of fear that had really has existed in, in immigrant communities for a long, long time, um, but was certainly ratcheted up during the Trump administration because of the public charge rule. Whether people knew the term public charge or not, um, I think the policy itself did rile up a lot of fear within immigrant communities and, and organizations that also helped that help immigrants and serve immigrants and of course immigration attorneys as well. Because really, people want to keep their clients, their um, families, and communities safe. So what you see here is a um, headline from the Boston Globe back in 2017. And there's a couple of things I want to point out about this headline. It says, immigrants and refugees too afraid to seek critical help from food pantries and domestic violence resources. So the first thing is that this slide says immigrants... In refugees, or this headline says immigrants and refugees. Well, as a matter of fact, refugees have never been part of the public charge rule, meaning that refugees, it was always safe for them to get whatever benefits they qualified for. So people who don't have to be afraid were afraid, but also seeking help from food pantries and domestic violence resources. Both of these things, food pantries, domestic violence resources, were never the type of benefits, even under the Trump rule, that were considered under public charge. So not only were people afraid who didn't have to be afraid, they were afraid about getting benefits they didn't have to be afraid of getting. What we call this is the chilling effect, and it has been very vast. And in fact, to this day, my organization and I still get calls about public charge concerns. We just got one yesterday. Uh, I see some of my co-panelists shaking their heads that you know it's still a common um, cause for concern, whether it's among the immigration bar, but also um, clients themselves, immigrants themselves. Next slide. So what are the benefits that are counted potentially negatively? And I do say potentially negatively um, under the public charge rule. Well, there were really only two benefits, and this is a difference from the, the Trump-era public charge rule that encompassed more kinds of benefits, but under the 1999 guidance and then also under the, the new Biden rule, there's only two benefits, two types of benefits. The first is cash assistance for income maintenance, and the second is long-term care institutionalization at government expense, and I'll talk about each in turn. Next slide. First, cash assistance. What we're talking about here is money from the government for, quote, income maintenance. So this could be money from the federal government, money from the state government, local government, or a tribal government. And it could be past cash assistance or current receipt of cash benefits. But 
what really is a cash benefit, right? That's where the rubber hits the road. It's not just anything, any kind of assistance could be considered cash assistance. It's really specific types of cash, um, specific types of assistance that are considered cash assistance. And I'm putting that purposefully in quotation marks, right? Because it's really a technical term under this rule, what cash assistance means. So what it means is for example, supplemental security income, which is a type of um, income from the federal government that is cash assistance that people receive. It is also it could also be TAFDC or T TANF through mass through the Massachusetts Department of Transitional Assistance or DTA. These are cash assistance programs that people get through our state level DTA. Also, EAEDC, which is also, uh, that's the acronym. Uh, it's called Emergency Aid to the Elderly, Disabled, and Children. I can never remember that, so I wrote that down. Uh, but EAEDC, again, is a, is a cash benefit at the state level. So these types of cash assistance programs are, are really, are. it's important to understand that they could be counted negatively if you receive these kinds of cash assistance programs or if you receive cash assistance from these types of programs. But I do want to put this caveat, and Jessica is going to talk about in a little bit, it's just the fact that you receive cash assistance in and of itself is not going to be enough to make you a public charge and make you inadmissible. It's not just about receiving it, that means you're a public charge. No, it's actually a much broader analysis in terms of um, totality of the circumstances that Jessica's going to talk about in a little bit. Let's go to the next slide. Long-term care institutionalization at government expense. Okay, this is the second category. And I'm going to kind of break this down here. So we've got the long-term care piece, and that's actually important. a really important piece is the long-term piece of this. Then we got the institutionalization, right? That means a person that is in an institution. It's not just about being in the community receiving long-term care uh, or long-term services and supports, because that wouldn't count. It has to be somebody who's in an institution. And it's, it's that that institutionalization for long-term care is being paid by the government. Now, when we say by the government, what we're usually meaning is the Medicaid program. Now, there are certain other types of funding for long-term care institutionalization, particularly around, uh, around mental health that doesn't necessarily come through Medicaid that could count um, for what's called institutions of mental disease under the law. Okay, that's the technical term under the, under the law for it, that the, it's a different funding mechanism than through Medicaid. But really what we're talking about is really generally three types of institutionalization. Skilled nursing facilities, also known as nursing homes, right? So if somebody has Medicaid paying for their nursing home care, chronic disease rehabilitation hospitals, and no chronic disease, and that's for long-term, okay? And also in a nursing home, it's not just a short-term stay. It's actually a long-term stay in a nursing home, a long-term stay in a CDRH, a chronic disease rehab hospital. Um and then there are these mental institution, mental health institutions where people sometimes have a long-term stay and not necessarily just a, a stabilization, right? It's not about a short-term rehab, a short-term stabilization. It's really about this long-term piece. 
What also is not included is incarceration for conviction of a crime. Some people are put in mental health institutions after being convicted of a crime. That is not going to count because it's about uh, conviction and, and incarceration, right? So this is government payment for these very particular types of institutionalization for long-term care. Next slide. So what does that mean? Well, really the headline is that most public benefits are not considered at all when it comes to public charge and are totally safe, okay? And totally safe for the individual themselves, totally safe for their family members. This includes healthcare programs like Medicaid if it's not for long-term care, the Children's Health Insurance Program, also called CHIP, any kind of care that people receive at community health centers, any kind of housing assistance, both at the state level or federal level, that's Section 8, RAFT, public health housing, food programs like SNAP or WIC uh, or school lunches, all safe, cash benefits that people receive from work. Okay, this is interesting, right? Because cash assistance counts, but only certain kinds of cash assistance. But what does not count is cash benefits that you earn through the employment system. So social security doesn't count, your pension doesn't count, unemployment assistance doesn't count. All right, so all these types of cash assistance programs through work don't count. Also COVID-related support, testing, treatment, vaccines, including cash assistance that people may receive or tax credits they may receive, all of that, um, including the um, what are basically SNAP-like benefits that people are receiving through COVID, which I think are ending today, as a matter of fact. If it's not today, it was yesterday or, or tomorrow. Um, in any case, all this COVID-related support, again, totally safe, not considered. Also, um, non-cash benefits that are provided by the state, local, or tribal governments, um, any of these non-cash benefits, totally safe. All right. So the headline, right? The headline is that if your client is in Medicaid or needs Medicaid, they need they need healthcare services or they need housing assistance, they need food for their family, they should get into those programs. There's absolutely no reason to hesitate to get into those programs. There is this caveat about the long-term care institutionalization, but if they don't need that kind of long-term care, they just need short-term rehab or something like that, it's safe. All right, I'm happy to answer more questions about that uh, later on. Uh, next slide. Uh, I just wanna do a quick highlight on immigrants and COVID-19 um, because this is true um, right now. It's been true during the COVID pandemic, and it will remain true for at least the next year, if not indefinitely. It's that all types of mass health cover testing and treatment of COVID-19 vaccines, uh, et cetera, in terms of COVID-related care. And that includes mass health limited, which is the um, type of uh, mass health that is the most limited and generally only covers emergencies. But when it comes to COVID, it, it is more broad and does cover all the whole range of COVID-related care. And there will be no cost-sharing and is no cost-sharing for any COVID-related care for MassHealth members, uh, no matter what type of MassHealth they're in. 
Just so you know, my expertise, I'm not an immigration attorney. I'm a benefits attorney with a focus on mass health and healthcare. So that's really where my expertise comes from. So I had to stick that in here at the end of my piece. I'm going to turn it over now, I believe. I believe that was my last slide and turning it over to Jessica. Great. Thank you, Andrew. And I just want to double down on the chilling effect. We had a call just like 15 minutes ago while we were already on this webinar from someone calling to find out whether they could receive fuel assistance or whether it's going to hurt their citizenship application. So on all fronts, the answer was it's absolutely safe. Please stay warm. Um, Okay, so as Andrew previewed, I'm going to talk about the totality of the circumstances test. Um, as was said, benefits, even though it's what everyone seems to want to talk about when we talk about public charge, is only a piece of the broader public charge test, which is really looking at several factors um, in all of the immigrant circumstances. And the policy manual guides uh, USCIS officers to consider all the information or evidence in the record that is relevant. Um, and that includes certain benefits use, but it also includes what we call the statutory minimum factors. Um, there's no bright line test. There isn't one factor other than lack of uh, an affidavit of support or lack of a sufficient affidavit of support. Um, but there's no one factor that is enough to determine that a person is a public charge. And we'll talk about some instances. Also, the test is perspective. So they're looking at whether the person in the future is likely to become a public charge. And that really opens up the ability to argue that even though the person in the past may have experienced cir certain circumstances, or even in the present, in the future, they will not become a public charge. Um, so the um, some of the um, factors that are considered are age, um, you can imagine both being very young and being older uh, could weigh negatively depending on the situation, but not necessarily. Um, health, um, DHS will generally defer to the medical exam and the policy manual also contains um, guidance around disability and how the finding of a disability or the fact that the person is disabled is not going to be sufficient um, to determine that the person will become a public charge. It can be relevant, but it won't be sufficient. And it goes so far as to say that many people who have a disability are nonetheless healthy, employable, et cetera. Uh, family status and household size, and there's very clear instructions on how to determine the household size, which many of you are probably already familiar with from other pieces like the affidavit of support and fee waivers, um, education and skills. And this isn't just about formal education. Um, it can include certainly, you know, certification licenses, but also kind of on the work job skills, foreign language skills. Um, and then the affidavit of support which is considered in support of an immigrant's application if it's sufficient. And we're going to talk a little bit more about affidavit of support um, in a moment. Um, and with regard to benefits use, even if the person has received cash assistance for income maintenance or long-term institutionalization at government expense, and that they're not otherwise exempt, um, and Iris will talk about that in a little bit, um, USCIS should consider the recency of the receipt of benefits, the duration, and the amount, um, as well as additional circumstances in that analysis. Next slide. Um, so first, I want to make clear, because I know that there was some confusion around this with the last uh, change in public charge regulations, that applying for under the current rule, applying for a public benefit, being approved for one, 
that will be received maybe in the future, helping someone else apply for a benefit, being in a household uh, with other family members who are receiving benefits, as Andrew has said, um, all of those are not going to be considered, right? That what is actually considered is the current or past receipt and use of those benefits. So I wanted to be super clear about that. If in looking at the benefits use or some of the other factors in the totality of circumstances test, there are negative factors, then you should consider um, crafting an affirmative narrative to focus on the positive. Um, that's what we do. So for example, you can argue that receipt of benefits in the past or even presently has helped or will help the applicant avoid future poverty. Um, you can argue that maybe someone is low income right now because they're limited in how many hours they can work because they're also going to school um, and, you know, receiving education that is going to uh, open up better employment opportunities for them in the future. So there's all sorts of ways in which you can craft current uh, factors that might look weak um, and cast them in a positive light. The USCIS policy manual does talk about certain specific special circumstances um, that are listed here. So they talk about children and how you can look at uh, whether perhaps the parental unemployment or other circumstances were temporary, the likelihood that the situation will continue or repeat itself uh, with regards to individuals who are pregnant um, or have been pregnant, recently pregnant, um, you know, it tells them to take the situation into account and the temporary nature of pregnancy uh, and postpartum. Um, it addresses specifically the circumstance of service members, acknowledging that it's going to be very rare that they have utilized um, these benefits, but again, advises officers to consider the duration, the amount, the recency, the circumstances surrounding the receipt of benefits. Um, and then probably, um, most relevant, uh, it talks about victims of crime and domestic violence um, and specifically says that applicants who have been victims of crime or domestic violence can choose to provide information about those circumstances and how that has impacted some of the other factors in the totality of circumstances like their income, like their assets, like their receipt of benefits, for example. Um, if um, the, the last tip on here is that if the benefit cannot be, if the use of benefit cannot be considered because the applicant was in an exempt status, and again, Iris is going to talk about who falls into that category, then you can also argue that the low income should also not be considered or not be heavily weighted because doing that would undermine the policy intent of the exemption itself. Okay, next slide. Okay, so I'm not going to cover affidavits of support um, in detail, but I did want to mention a few things um, specific with public charge and affidavits of support. So first of all, th this is the only factor where if it is not met, then the individual can be denied just on the basis of this one factor. So if an affidavit of support is not submitted where one is required, um, it's not always required, but a good rule of thumb is that with family-based adjustment applicants, it will be required. Um, if an affidavit of support is not submitted or if it is submitted, it is not sufficient to show that the sponsor or the joint sponsors will maintain the applicant at or above 125% of the federal poverty level, then um, the application can be denied on that basis of an insufficient or non-existent affidavit of support. Um, if an affidavit of support 
is there a particularly strong one can help kind of cure and soften concerns with some of the other factors, right? Maybe somebody has a low level of education or, um, you know, has poor health, uh, but they have a particularly strong affidavit of support that can kind of help balance that out. Um, if a joint sponsor is used in addition to the petitioner, the main sponsor, then it can also be helpful to provide information about the relationship between the applicant and the joint sponsor that can be a family relationship or some other type of community tie, um, and also a history of past support. And that will just make that joint affidavit of support that much more credible. If you can show that there's a relationship there, um, that it isn't someone that has kind of been plucked um, to, to sign off on this piece of paper, that there is a history of a relationship and support. Um, and the last step here is to consider using different joint sponsors for different family members adjusting status. So if you have a family of three or five or seven applying for adjustment of status and a joint sponsor is needed for all of them, perhaps not using the same joint sponsor for all, um, but kind of spreading that load um, a little bit. And I think that's all I wanted to say about the affidavit of support. Next slide, Mario. Oh, and I'm passing it um, back to Iris. Thank you, Jessica. And before I go on, I just wanted to mention that almost everything we're saying is encapsulated in the materials that you were all going to be receiving and uh, linking to. And the the immigration law uh, wonky stuff is more is set forth in more detail in the practice advisory. So I, I would highlight that. So <laughs> you don't get alarmed when you start seeing all these um, unfamiliar references in, in the details. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk about um, immigration statuses that qualify people for exemptions from the public charge ground of inadmissibility. And why is it important to know that? Um, uh, primarily, it's important because these whole this whole set of public charge principles arose to exclude or keep people who are low income and who've struggled, you know, the classic immigrant tale, um, from from actually acquiring legal status here or uh, being allowed into the country, and so. Exemptions, many of which um, have been created by the INA and many pieces of standalone legislation, they, they've um, operated to humanize that old uh, way of looking at people in struggle, in financial struggle. So it's, it's important to prevent the chilling effect that um, Andrew was talking about to be uh, familiar with if not all the provisions that create the exemptions, but um, then at least um, with, the, with, the, with the section of the regulations that list them out very neatly for you. And that's um, at 212.23a. Now, um, it, it's um, uh, a, a difference. Um, there are some differences from the the 99 guidance in that the 99 guidance didn't have such a thorough exposition of who is not um, subject to public charge. So it, it's a handy dandy place to find um, who, who, who is um, 
not going to have to deal with this. The other reason it's important is that Jessica is going to talk about filling out the um, uh, the new I-485 and the amount of information that one has to include um, and the cost to the client is going to be um, determined by whether or not they're exempt. If they're exempt, they are not going to have to provide as much information about certain aspects of their lives. So that, that is a, a benefit. So I wanted to talk about the types of exemptions because they have different impacts on how public charge is assessed. Um, so there are basically two types of exemptions in the regulation. Those that apply uh, to people who are adjusting status through specific pathways. And um, secondly, those that apply to people who are applying for a, a status other than adjustment of status. And um, I should just note that in the adjustment um, exemption area that over 20 pieces of legislation, including the INA, um, provide um, exemptions to people adjusting status through those vehicles. And I'll just mention a few of those in a little bit. But um, with regard to those who are applying for a non-adjustment of status status, um, like TPS or asylum, it's very important um, that um, uh, you all are aware that whether or not USCIS can look at the receipt of a benefit by a person who was um, who is subject to public charge. Um, uh, let's see. They they may USCIS. How do I say USCIS may not consider certain benefits received by exempt people, even when they're adjusting in um, 245A proceedings, which are subject to public charge rules. So um, that is why it's important to figure out, are they in one of those categories? Because a TPS applicant who has no vehicle for adjusting status that is exempt is going to have to rely on 245A family adjustment if they have a qualifying relative or uh, other other um, meet other criteria, and um, that's going to be their pathway. And public charge applies there. So, next slide. Okay, so um, among the exemptions listed in that regulation, there are some exemptions that are, uh, we, we, we've been calling them super exemptions, the, the, the regulations don't call them that, but these are um, specific categories of statuses and um, specific uh, groups granted exemptions through a categorical pathway for vulnerable people that um, allow the exemption to attach, whether the individual is adjusting status or seeking admission via that categorical pathway like VAWA, Violence Against Women Act, um, or whether they are um, adjusting through the normal family-based uh, 245A pathway that normally includes a public charge um, component. And these are T's and U's, 
um, uh, T applicants with a prima facie case, VAWA self petitioners, and a specific set of qualified aliens who are set out in the um, definitions in the INA and in the exceptions to the public charge ground of inadmissibility. So just a note here, this is laid out more in the advisory, but VAWA self-petitioners includes by statute more than an individual who submits an actual self-petition under the Violence Against Women Act because it's been brought in to include other victims who have uh, adjusted or filed to adjust under other provisions. So it's it's really much more comprehensive. So I listed at the top of this slide, the specific um, uh, regulatory references to those uh, super exemptions in the ranks. So you don't have to worry about those folks as much um, in terms of their choices about which, uh, which way, which pathway they will take. But this may be important for, let's say, a you non-immigrant, right? We know there are these extraordinary backlogs in adjusting status as a you. So if that person has um, a U.S. citizen or permanent resident relative through whom they can seek a regular family-based adjustment of status, they may they may prefer to do that, and um, it's it's extraordinarily beneficial that. They can do that if they meet the other criteria in the reg for that um, exemption, uh, and that it doesn't—it's it, not going to hurt them that they're poor or that they received the benefits they did. Okay, next slide. So this just lays out without um, without uh, citations, which are in the in the advisory. Um, to the, the specific laws in, in the first, number one, to the specific um, categories of people who have um, an adjustment pathway that includes a specific express exemption from public charge. The um, largest number that we see are um, asylees and refugees who um, uh, you know, have an exemption under Section 209A of the um, of the INA, but many many um, nationals have have been uh, granted the a pathway to adjustment of status under country specific standalone laws, and I just listed some of them here who are not um, not. Uh, subject to public charge because there's some sort of law specifically for them. Um, and in terms of the exemptions that apply to non-adjustment of status statuses, uh, the probably the most important are TPS and people seeking asylum and refugee status, although there are a few others that are also um, important. Now, I didn't include it on this slide, but uh, the, the regulations also reflect the fact that there are some public charge waivers available, but um, in terms of seeking permanent residence, the public charge waivers are, are, are limited to those who are adjusting as S um, visa 
um, snitch informers, as they call them, or people who adjusted under the old legalization law, and there's very few of those folks around anymore. Next slide. All right, so here we want to try to correlate who's eligible for, for the benefits that count and who might qualify for these exemptions. So essentially for the federal benefits that are covered by the rule, which Andrew went over, SSI and TANF or TAFDC, non-citizen eligibility is extremely limited. That's another reason why why uh, most of the benefits that non-citizens get are, are, are fine uh, for most immigrants because they are not qualified aliens. So it's a very narrow category of people who are considered eligible for those two programs. Those that are um, not recognized as exempt for purposes of public charge who are qualified aliens, um, even though they may not be subject to the public charge rule, and I'll explain that in a minute, are people with parole, withholding of removal, and a few subcategories of Cuban Haitian entrance. So um, parole and withholding of removal are not um, statuses that in which one is seeking admission. That is why the public, they're not subject to the public charge inadmissibility ground. However, um, they're not recognized as expressly exempt by the, um, by the rule. So even though they are um, uh, not going to have problems with public charge getting parole or withholding, the, um, the fact that they have received a public benefit like SSI or TANF could affect them in the future should they seek to adjust status through 245A or another pathway subject to public charge. So if there's, there, there is a, a, a strategy and a vehicle for that, for dealing with that, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but that that's just you know, why it matters, who's eligible for the benefits and who's not. Now, in the Cuban-Haitian entrant group, this is another term of art. Um, and uh, the Cuban-Haitian entrant group includes some people who are expressly exempt from public charge and other groups who are not. And um, the definition of a Cuban-Haitian entrant is defined in a, uh, a refugee law from many years ago. It's cited in the materials, but for example, a person who is in proceedings um, who is Cuban or Haitian and has no final enforceable uh, removal order against them entered is considered a Cuban-Haitian entrant. Now, they are um, not exempt from public charge, so to the extent they receive a qualifying benefit, they they may be um, may also like the parolees and the withholding of removal grantees encounter an issue around it down the road. For state benefits that are covered by the rule, i.e. the EAEDC program and any benefits to pay for long-term institutionalization as described by Andrew, 
a much larger group of non-citizens qualify because Massachusetts provide, provides this benefit to those who are arguably here in some colorably lawful status and it, and that can encompass many, many, many more statuses than those that are qualified aliens. So with EAEDC, you have to be more scrutinizing about you know, what the person's status is and, um, and what impact it will have. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Uh, this is another, another way in which the 99 guidance and the rule deviate is that this rule provides um, a very, very special set of special rules that allow some benefits received to be disregarded in the public charge analysis, which is different than saying whether or not public charge should apply at all, because when public charge doesn't apply, none of the factors are supposed to be evaluated, the person's income or, or uh, all of those uh, factors that Jessica laid out. Um, do not get um, weight the way that they do for people who are subject to public charge. But the benefits disregard rules provide that even if a person is now seeking admission or adjustment of status that is subject to public charge, the receipt of benefits while in an exempt status does not count um, against the person. So, this was not in the 99 guidance. It's a wonderful um, recognition of the fact that people who are exempt should not be penalized um, later on if they seek, for example, adjustment, uh, uh, if they are, let's say, an asylum uh, beneficiary, asylee who seeks to now adjust status as a um, uh, through a family member for some reason, or maybe more germane, a U, a U visa beneficiary who seeks um, to do that, or a T TPS holder, because these are all statuses that um, it, it, it didn't matter that the person, uh, when the person received the benefits, they, they were not subject to um, to public charge at the time, but but um, the the um, the pathway toward permanent residence through a family member it creates another problem. So um, a good example of um, so there are two of these rules. One is for receiving a benefit while in one of those statuses. This is the, more, the most comprehensive disregard is what I would call them, the disregard. They disregard the benefits or USCIS is supposed to disregard the benefit. The second one is refugee benefits received by certain categories of people who are treated as if they were refugees for purposes of receiving those benefits, but they aren't technically refugees like the Ukrainians and these groups that have recently arrived um, in the United States under special invitation, let's say, of the U.S. government to be treated in a special way. So, um, so that's a, a more limited set of benefits, and it only covers those, those individuals. Um, but 
just to give a, a, a quick example of how the, the the bigger disregard provision can come into effect, um, let's say somebody files an immigrant uh, a petition to to get classified as an immigrant in I-130 through a family member abroad, consular processing, and you know this rule doesn't apply to the public charge rule doesn't apply to those folks, but let's say they get state EAEDC cash benefits because that I-130 is taking forever and, and somehow the, the, the status that they're in has qualified them for state EAEDC benefits. So a couple of years go by, now they get TPS because they're from a TPS country. Now in TPS, they continue to get that benefit or they perhaps, uh, um, well, let's just say they they keep getting that benefit, or they 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 get it for a different period, um, and then more time goes by, and now they have a relative that they can adjust status with through two forty five a, and now they're applying for adjustment of status. So, what happens to how the benefits are treated by that person? Um, matters, right? Their TPS benefits, TPS is an exempt status, as we've learned. Those benefits have to be disregarded. But the benefits that they received while they were merely a, an I-130 beneficiary for, you know, a visa petition submitted by their citizen brother or something, um, those benefits um, uh, are, aren't protected by the benefits disregard because it only applies while you are in one of those exempt statuses. So that's an example of, um, you know, <laughs> the weeds that you have to get into in properly analyzing the impact of benefits received. So um, I just wanted to um, end with um, a couple of legal arguments that we are hoping folks will make in their cases. We, we hope that all these rules are gonna be applied in a very generous manner, that the opportunity to provide mitigating circumstances such as Jessica described about, you know, if you were a victim of domestic violence, even if you're not in it, weren't in an exempt status or you, you, um, you know, you were evacuated from your country because, the situation was so horrible, uh, whatever the circumstances were, um, you know, that that the opportunity to have this applied in a generous and compassionate manner will mean that very few people are denied uh, adjustment of status based on public charge grounds. However, um, as we know, uh, some people will be, and there will be requests for evidence. Um, Jessica's going to talk about what to do in those situations, but I just want to flag that if um, any individuals are um, denied adjustment of status or um, or subject to requests for evidence um, based on public charge, um, I, I'm very interested in seeing copies of those documents. Uh, particularly if the people were um, were receiving state EAEDC cash benefits and they are in withholding of removal status or um, another status that in like 
a role or or DACA that is in theory not subject to public charge because it's not not subject to admissibility um, and um, that uh, we we think some of us advocates um, should be um, should qualify for the benefits disregard provision and um, would like to maybe push the envelope on that issue down the road. So I'll, I'll end with that. Sorry if I went over. <laughs> Jessica? All right. Thank you, Iris. And I think every minute of wisdom from you is worth it. So don't worry. I think we have plenty of time. Um, so I just wanted to cover in a few slides filling out the actual I-45. And again, we're looking at the current version. So that's edition date 1223-2022, which is the effective date of the new public charge rule. That's why they changed it and updated it. And it has eight questions on it that are specific to public charge inadmissibility. Um, and so it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. It starts with question 61. Are you subject to public charge? Um, and the instructions don't really provide a whole lot of information. They basically tell you to look at the policy manual or to look directly at the regulation, or you can look at these slides or our practice advisory. And so if you fall into one of the exempt categories where you're not subject to public charge in that process of adjustment of status, then you can simply put no and you skip the rest of the relevant questions. You go straight to question 69, which I don't even know what it is um, because I didn't look past that for purposes of this presentation. Um, so that's the first uh, step. Next slide. If you are subject to public charge, then you have to answer questions 62 through 68, and they're fairly straightforward. So we're just gonna quickly walk through them. The first one is, what is the size of your household? And the instructions do a pretty good job providing information about that. It's the applicant and then certain family members, if they're living with them, right? Spouse, parents, siblings under the age of 21 and unmarried, uh, children, again, only if they're living with you. Um, and then any other dependents that you've claimed on your taxes, or if anyone has claimed you as a dependent, right? Then that would generally be considered part of your household. Um, then question 63 is your household income. So again, not just the applicant, but the entire household income. And for this, it's important to note, and again, this information is also in the instructions, I believe, um, that this includes uh, income that may not show up on your federal taxes. So it should include things like child support and alimony payments, um, and it should exclude the cash assistance for income maintenance that we talked about. So you should exclude SSI, TANF, um, and other types of uh, cash assistance for income maintenance. Um, question 64 is the value of your household assets. So again, not just the applicant, but the entire household. Um, next slide. Um, 65, again, about household liability. So the flip side, any loans, liabilities out there. Question 66 is the highest level of schooling that has been completed. 
Um, and actually, we haven't talked about this, but I think, you know, if it's a non-US schooling that you would opt for what, what is the equivalent. Um, and then 67 is kind of a catch-all. I don't show the full box here, but there's several lines uh, where you can provide information here. And then, of course, you can provide additional information in the addendums. Um, it, and this is a place to include, certainly, if the person has any particular licenses or certifications or educational certificates, but also things like language skills, on the work job experience and training can also be provided here. Um, and you're not required to provide any kind of documentation in support of these answers. Um, okay, next slide. And so question 68 is a, is a four part question, but it's still only one question. And this is the only time that they're going to ask information about benefits. And 68A and 68B simply ask, have you ever received and A is about cash assistance for income maintenance, so SSI, TANF, state, tribal, territorial, or local, or cash benefit programs for income maintenance, and it's yes or no. And then B is the same question about long-term institutionalization at government expense. If either of those have a yes answer, then you have to fill out the chart in 68C for cash assistance or in 68D. Um, for long-term institutionalization. Note that unlike some of the um, Trump era forms, it doesn't require disclosure of any other benefits, right? So all the benefits that we said are safe benefits, everything other than cash assistance for income maintenance or long-term institutionalization at government expense not required to disclose. It also doesn't collect any information about whether you have ever applied for these benefits if you have not then received them, right? The question is just about receipt of these benefits by the applicant, again, not by another household member or family member. Um, so if you have applied for benefits and, and you've been denied, for example, maybe because of your immigration status, then you don't need to provide any information and you can say no. Um, if the benefit was received while the person was in an exempt or protected status, right, you are checking off, yes, that so you have received it, but then you want to tell them, but it shouldn't count against me, right? And there isn't a clear way on the form to say that. If you are now subject to the public charge test, but you received a benefit in an exempt protected status and it can't be counted against you, there isn't a super clear way to note that. So a couple of things that you can do is decline to provide information and say, you know, not applicable or write, you know, received while in exempt status only, or you can provide the information and that notation whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, and the institutionalization question as well, if you are trying to make an argument that the institutionalization was in violation of federal law and therefore should not be counted against you, um, then you should provide um, some additional information about that and, and some documentation to kind of back up that argument. And my final slide. Um, so what happens uh, if there is a finding of inadmissibility? 
Um, so as Iris already noted, some very, very narrow categories of individuals will be eligible for a waiver. So there are subject to the public charge test. Uh, they are subject to the ground of inadmissibility, but can apply for a waiver. Um, those are the S visa adjustment of status. I've never seen one. Um, and some also categories of non-immigrant workers. So outside of the adjustment of status um, category. Um, for most individuals who are not going to be subject to a waiver, um, there is a possibility of USCIS requesting a public charge bond. Um, and that is a process that has to be initiated by USCIS. In other words, you can't you know, submit an application and say, and I would like to pay a bond to take care of you know, my public charge issue. Um, it has to be initiated by USCIS, and the way they do that is by issuing a NOID, a Notice of Intent to Deny, setting forth um, the reasons why they think a public charge bond is needed in their discretion and the specific amount um, that they're requesting. Uh, the minimum bond amount that can be set is $1,000, but it could be set higher. I haven't seen one, so I expect that to the extent that a bond is requested, it's not going to be $1,000. I would expect um, a higher amount there. Um, and that remains in place while the person is, is subject um, to the public charge grounds. So that's generally, I think, after completing five years in lawful permanent resident status or naturalizing, whichever comes first. Um, if... Uh, USCIS does not decide in their discretion to offer the possibility of a public charge bond, and they decide to deny it based on uh, public charge inadmissibility. They have to do so through a written decision, and that written decision should not be boilerplate. Um, it should reflect consideration of each of the factors, the statutory factor that we talked about, right? Age, health, um, employment, educational skills, income assets, all of those things that we talked, the affidavit of support. So considering each one that will be unique in every client's and every applicant's case and articulating the reasons for the inadmissibility finding. The USCIS policy manual does have three different hypothetical scenarios um, that they provide as examples. Two of them they find uh, should not be found inadmissible and one of them they do um, make a finding of inadmissibility. So you can look at those for some guidance, but of course every single case is going to be unique. And in every case, those factors can be weighed differently. Um, if a denial is issued, there is the possibility to file a motion to reopen or reconsider with USCIS. And there's also the possibility of renewing um, the adjustment of status application, simply filing a new I-485. Um, and I think that wraps up what I was going to say. So I'm going to hand it back to you, Mario. Great, thank you. And we are approaching the, the end right now. So we're gonna go over a few uh, top line messages just to kind of wrap up the conversation. But also in the meantime, urge you all to submit your questions because right after this, we're, we're gonna try to respond to some of those. We've been trying to respond to some of them through the chat, uh, but we'll see if we need to circle back to any of those or any others that come in. So please uh, submit them these next couple of minutes. So just to wrap up some top line messages, uh, some of which we've you know already mentioned, but the most important being 
most immigrants in Massachusetts should keep their benefits for the various reasons that will, were already listed, uh, you know, including the fact that they may very well be exempt from the public charge rule to start with. Uh, it could be that the benefits that they're receiving are not included in the rule, or it could even be the fact that they may be included, um, but you know it doesn't. It, it still needs to be part of this totality of circumstances determination and analysis. So avoiding benefits does not mean that you will pass the public charge test. There can be other factors that may weigh heavily against you know the, uh, the clients that you're working with, and so. You know, just avoiding benefits when, for example, someone has, uh, you know, very low income that might, you know, affect them is just going to put them in a, in a tough position, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, taking care of themselves and their family. And so uh, the next thing is to the use of public programs does not automatically make you a public charge. So even if someone is eligible for one of the benefits that's counted, they're not exempt from the rule. Um, you know, there's still going to have to be that uh, analysis and there's room for, for argument there based on, you know, what, what's been shared in the last several um, slides. And lastly, benefits used by family members will not count, you know, in the public charge decisions. We emphasize this again because we get a lot of questions around this in particular is family members, not only the applicants, but family members being, you know, scared of, of jumping onto any, you know, benefits or in, in some cases considering jumping off benefits because they're afraid it's going to affect the applicant uh, for adjustment of status. And so just want to make that extra clear. Again, there's a lot of information here. Um, there's a lot we're going to be, you know, sharing in terms of resources, but when in doubt, please seek consultation. We'll have our information at the end of the slides in case you need to reach out with more specific questions. And we urge you to review the, the resources that we'll be following up with as well that provide more details that we could go into in, in this presentation. Uh, here are some of the helpful materials that you'll be receiving. They'll be linked here in the slides. Uh, I'll just briefly touch on them. One, it's been mentioned already, the public charge practice advisory for, you know, attorneys and other folks, uh, you know, who are going to be working with clients that are going to be submitting adjustment of status applications. The advisory goes into a lot more detail around all the sections that we just covered, you know, throughout the, the presentation today. And it's a good summary of what can be found both in the final uh, regulations and also in the policy manual as well. Also, we included, and I think Jessica also linked it in the Q&A, a safe benefits list. It's, it's not, it's as comprehensive as we could get, but there are so many benefits out there. And that's why it's really important to really focus on the benefits that do count under the public charge rule, which were the cash, you know, assistance for income maintenance and long-term institutionalization. Um, rather than trying to list out all the safe benefits, but we did try to do as much as we could in this safe benefits list. And so we urge you to look at that if there are any you know, questions and doubts. And I believe the policy manual also includes a list that's not you know, fully comprehensive, but it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty long as well. Uh, and then there's a couple of resources just on benefits, um, different benefits eligibility. So with cash benefits, nutrition benefits, different health coverage and, and housing as well. And so that's just for folks who want to, you know, get a little bit better understanding of that as well. And then finally, it, we included this self-sufficiency worksheet, which is you'll, you'll notice that it, it's a, a little bit outdated, but it provides some information that can be really helpful in regards to 
uh, certain benefits and why those benefits, uh, if someone is on those benefits, can be helpful for uh, for individuals, especially when trying to make arguments to the fact that these benefits use can actually help folks climb out of you know uh, poverty and out of a place of uh, you know where they could potentially be affected by the public charge rule. And so those are some of the resources that we urge you all to look through uh, once we send it out after the presentation. Uh, finally, there's you know there's this has been a multi-year effort. Uh, by many organizations, uh, both nationally and locally, to um, you know keep track of what's happening with the public charge rule to advocate for for better rules. And so, if you want to keep up with what's happening and get more information, you can sign up to the national campaign and be on their email listserv. Um, that's the pitcoalition.org. Uh, there's also uh, those of us who have been working on it locally here, and you can email uh, us. Um, either the email you see here, but also we'll provide our specific emails. And, uh, and, and so with that said, I think we're going to open it up for questions. This is our contact information if you need to reach out to us. I will open it before that. Andrew, if you wanted to say anything specifically about the Health Law Advocates uh, you know, hotline so that folks are aware of what that is and what kind of questions they could uh, you know, reach out with. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Mario. So Health Law Advocates helps clients who need access to care and coverage. So where you have clients who uh, are immigrants, we have specialized expertise at the intersection of healthcare benefits and immigration status. And frankly, there are a ton of people who are in Mass Health Limited or basically limited benefits when they should qualify for comprehensive benefits. That is the most common type of case we get. Um, so if you have a client or you know people in the community who need access to care, need access to coverage, uh, and you have some questions about that, you can certainly contact us. And this is our 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 intake line. And you know, we have a very close partnership with an organization called Healthcare for All that has a helpline that helps people sign up for programs, and they're really good at it too. So um, you can call us if you think there's a legal barrier. You certainly also can reach out to Healthcare for All, uh, and we can send out their information to you as well uh, if if they if people need help uh, signing up for healthcare programs. So, right, thank you. Happy to thank hear you. from you. Appreciate it. And as was mentioned also earlier, there's going to be, you know, more uh, workshops and resources available, not only with what we're sending out, you know, another resource, uh, Adrian spoke about AILA and their conference as well. So please be on the lookout for, for that. So we're going to move on to some questions now. We did respond to some of them in the chat. I'm going to circle back to one of them that was in the chat in case there's anything else that anyone else wants to offer on this point. And then uh, I see another one that, that came in more recently as well. So the question was in regards to RFEs and NOIDs. Um, the question was, is USCIS gonna, going to issue RFEs to request the I-864 affidavit of support if one is not included or not signed or found insufficient or whether they just flat out deny or reject? So I think one thing I'll say before you know trying to, to answer that is this is part of what we want to collect information on because we're not sure exactly, you know, one thing is what's in the policy and what they say in the regulations, but in terms of how it's going to be, you know, play out, uh, we're not sure yet, you know, we're going to start seeing that as more of these applications get filed. And so 
We're really going to rely on all of you to reach out to us with what are the issues you're seeing, you know, when you receive denials, when you receive RFEs. So please, uh, you know, jot down our contact information and, and reach out to us when you, when you do get some of those issues that come up. But uh, I, I just broadly, you know, the, the policy manual does include some information RFEs noids. And one of those is it includes a kind of a step-by-step flow chart that USAIS officers are going to you know be using and making these determinations and so it does seem to suggest that when an i-64 is not submitted when required or determined insufficient that they would make a finding of inadmissibility but um i I wanted to open that up in case you know jessica iris or others have any any thoughts on on that as well uh, because there does seem to be some at least discretion as to USCIS of issuing those RFEs and loads. So are there any other thoughts on that? I don't have anything else. I'm not seeing anything clearly in the guidance that says if an 864 is not submitted, an RFE must be issued. The language around RFEs is very much like may, uh, you know, USCIS may request additional evidence for an RFE. Um, I, I would like to think that, yes, if if it's like a whole piece like that, that's missing, that they're going to RFE it before um, submitting a denial, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and that's definitely one thing that that we're going to, to track. It does say that if they are planning to deny the case based on evidence that was not um, submitted by the applicant and that the applicant could be unaware of or could not reasonably be expected to know, then in that case, they have to first issue a notice of intent to deny uh, rather than just denying. Right. Thank you. Yeah. So please keep us posted if if those issues come up and, you know, what responses you get. Um, so one open question here was, are I-64 waivers bedded with adjustment of status applications? So I don't know if that question refers to people being exempt from the requirement that they submit an affidavit of support or rather um, the waiver. So the waiver, the waiver of inadmissibility, much like you would request a waiver to like the unlawful presence uh, bar or a criminal ground of inadmissibility, right? You can request a waiver if you're inadmissible based on public charge, but in very, very limited, narrow circumstances. Uh, So for your standard family-based adjustment of status case, there isn't going to be a waiver. If you're subject to public charge, then you're going to have to satisfy the public charge test through a sufficient affidavit of support and then also balancing of the other relevant factors. The only other thing I would add, I'm not sure if the question was getting at this, is that um, there are people who are not uh, required to submit an affidavit of support, uh, including people who have earned the 40 quarters or 10 years worth of work through their own employment or their own and their qualifying family members. Um, and um, and so an individual has to has to establish that in, in in you know to the satisfaction of USCIS. So USCIS doesn't think that they are subject to it. Um, and there's a lot more information on that on the whole affidavit of support um, issue and who's not 
required to submit um, one in, I believe, Clinic Catholic Legal Immigration Network's resources on um, immigrant visa processing. Uh, do we have something else besides that? Does anybody know that we're using? Is Adrian there? Maybe Im uh, Immigrant Legal Resource Center is another like these are these are um, organizations that have a lot of online material and you can they're kind of go-to's on family immigration uh, that that you can look look for maybe when we send out our materials we'll look for something good on uh affidavits of support and and include that link as well mario you think yeah, yeah i just good. shared one in 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 response to the last question on this which is an ilrc guide yeah. to affidavit of support that does a really good job at explaining who doesn't have to file the 864 if i'm remembering correctly um, it, it predates the current rule, uh, but the effort, you know, it, it's not going to change that that piece of it, I don't think. Um, the USCIS policy manual under the public charge section also includes a chapter and affidavit of support, and in it also includes those categories that Iris was mentioning, like if you can show 40 quarters of work history, um, if you're a VAWA self-petitioner, um, then you don't have to file the the. 64. Thank you. Okay. I don't see any current questions right now. Uh, let me see here. So we have a couple more minutes. So if anyone has any final questions before we wrap up. Okay. Well, Thank you everyone for sticking around for all your questions. Uh, you know, we hope this was helpful and please reach out either if we can support you, you know, with any of these more detailed questions, and especially as these issues come up and you're submitting these applications for your clients, uh, please keep us updated. It's something that we want to track to see if we need to do any, you know, further advocacy on that front. Uh, again, thank you to all the folks involved, the panelists, uh, Ayla, BBA, uh, you know, Mira, Health Law Advocates, uh, and we hope uh, that, that we could follow up with all the information and, and hear from you in the future. So thank you. Thank you. Good night.